Welcome to Choice Classic Radio. Like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube, and help keep this show alive by donating at choiceclassicradio.com. For more of your favorite old-time radio shows, join us on our companion podcast, Choice Classic Radio Detectives, where we bring to you tales from the greatest detective shows the golden age of radio had to offer. Makers of Campbell Soup present the Campbell Playhouse. Orson Welles, producer. Good evening, this is Orson Welles. Because of the special nature of tonight's broadcast, with its very special demands on an actress's versatility, and because, too, she is one of the finest performers in the American theater, we are fortunate indeed in having with us in the Campbell Playhouse Miss Cornelia Otis Skinner. Tonight we bring you an original broadcast. Its subject, the great American dream of personal liberty and independence. We call it The Things We Have. But before we begin, a word from Ernest Chapel. Among our favorite Sunday dinner dishes, I don't think there's anything we prize quite so highly as chicken. Whether it's roasted and stuffed or fried in tender, crisp brown pieces or fricasseed, the cherished flavor of chicken is something we always look forward to. Chicken has been the number one dish for special occasions for many, many years. And because we like chicken so well, we become mighty critical judges of any chicken dish that appears on our tables. So I think the fact that Campbell's Chicken Soup has grown so steadily in popularity month after month and year after year speaks worlds for it. And I can safely promise any of you this. As sure as you like chicken, you like Campbell's chicken soup. Every spoonful, every drop of its golden broth is rich with chicken flavor. There are tender, nourishing pieces of chicken meat for you to enjoy. And the finest of fluffy snow-white rice drifts all through it. Here's chicken soup to match the finest ever made at home. And I wouldn't dare to say that if I were not sure that you'll agree with me once you've tasted Campbell's chicken soup. And now our American cavalcade, The Things We Have, an original broadcast written and produced by Orson Welles and starring Cornelia Otis Skinner. I'm not. 
But you can't blame me for feeling a little scared. Gosh, Mary, do you think we're doing the right thing? Of course, Jim. Of course we are. I hope it works. Mr. and Mrs. Scott. Oh, yes, that's us. Mr. and Mrs. Scott. Jim, here we are. Mr. and Mrs. Scott. That's right. You the couple meeting a party by the name of Lang? Yeah. You can go on board now. Thank you. Mr. and Mrs. James Scott, citizens? Yes. Uh, you're here for uh, Simon Lang? That's right. Call Simon Lang. Simon Lang! Simon Lang! Look, Jim. That's him. She. Look at him. Are you Simon Lang? Yes, sir. Simon Lang. Mr. and Mrs. James Scott, you have declared your intention of legally adopting this child. You certify that you will provide for him till he reaches the age of 21 and undertake that until then, he shall at no time become a public charge in the government of the United States. Is that correct? It is. All right, young fellow. Let's see your card. Mm Mm-hmm. Age? Nine years old. Eyes blue. Height? One meter twelve. Yeah, four feet six, I guess. Hair brown. How about your parents, mother? My mother is dead two years. Father? Well, what's your father's name? Oscar Lang. Father alive? The uh, boy's father was an associate of mine in business over there six months ago. Oh, yeah, sure, I know. Nationality? Mm-hmm. All right, son, that's all. Yeah, here's your landing card. Well, what do you think? Are you going to become an American citizen? Citizen? Uh, what's this one? Citizen? <laughs> well, I guess you'll find out after a while. All right, good luck. Jim. Sorry, Mary. Couldn't make for dinner. Work kind of piled up on me at the office. Everything all right? Fine. Where is he? Oh, he looks pretty tired. I put him to bed right after dinner. He said to say goodbye to you. Happy, darling. Oh, Jim. He's awfully cute. Is he? When we sat down to dinner tonight, he helped me into my chair. Every time I walk into the room, he stands up. What'd you do with him all afternoon? Did him shopping? Did he say much about his home, about his father? No. I guess it's that age kids forget pretty quickly. Yes. Does that seem very strange to him? <laughs> what are you laughing at? <laughs> you can ask the dumbest question. Yeah? What sort of question? Oh, all about this country and how people live over here. He's awfully bright, Jim. One of the things he asked, I simply couldn't answer. Well, what'd you do? <laughs> I told him to ask you. Oh, that's nice of you. You know, seriously, Mary, there's a lot of things about this country that kid's got a right to know. Things he'll have to know before he gets into school. It's up to you and me to tell him. Yes, I guess you're right. Say, Mary, let's go and take a look at him. Oh, Jim, you'll wake him up. I won't. Besides, doesn't a man got a right to have a look at his son? Hey, listen. Jim, I believe he's crying. I guess he is. Oh, Jim. Poor little guy. Hello, son. What's the matter? What's wrong, dear? It's nothing. Come on, move over. That's it. Sit down. Quite a jump, isn't it? Yes, sir. Well, son, it's a jump folks have been taking for a long time now. Well, for more than 300 years, people have been packing up and leaving everything they know about and coming to America. I guess the first day they landed, no matter how much they wanted to come, most of them felt about the same as you do. Yes, sir. You see, Simon, this country's made up of people like you. People who came over here on boats just the same as you. Why did they do that? Were they obliged to leave their homes? No. I guess they came because they wanted to. Well, anyway, I guess they all had reasons of their own. You know, son, 
Get right down to it. We all came here for just about the same thing. Freedom. Freedom? Yeah, that's the word we used. My folks did, I know. Uh, their folks who brought them here did. Mrs. Scott's great-great-grandparents. And every one of them, I guess that word freedom meant something different. For some, it meant freedom to think and speak as they pleased. In others, it just meant freedom to exist with a fair amount of happiness, to earn a decent living by the toil of their hands. For the first people who came here meant freedom to live together and to worship their God together, openly, in their own way. That was over 300 years ago. A petition presented to His Majesty King James I in the 16th year of his reign of England, France, and Ireland, of Scotland the 150th by his humble subjects, to meet for worship in the public places with peace and protection, would be in this world the greatest blessing which our hearts desire or which would come to us. But we dare not expect, neither do we ask so great a favor at Your Majesty's hand, only that in private we might serve God with clear and quiet consciences. We, in all lowliness, crave but your toleration. The petition is refused. Our pleasure is that all the Puritans and physicians conform themselves or leave the country according to the laws of our kingdom and the canons of our church. And we do hereby command our judges and justices to put the law into execution against them. God and the king will reward their sins. Brethren, we that are about to embark today for the new world are a company professing ourselves fellow members of Christ, for which reason, though we come from many regions and diverse classes, we ought to account ourselves knit together by this bond of love. Our object today is to seek out a new home under a new form of government, both civil and ecclesiastical. Our end is to improve our lives, to do more service to the Lord. For this end, we must be knit together in this work as one man. So shall we keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. So that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken, and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword through the world. Therefore, let us choose life, that we and our seed may live by obeying his voice and pleading to him, for he is our life and our prosperity. He shall make us a praise and glory that men shall say of succeeding plantations, the Lord make it like that of New England. They were the first to come, Simon. They came in little wooden ships with their wives and their children, and then afterwards others came. And always when men spoke of this country, that same word, that word freedom was on their lips. To others in other countries, America ever meant freedom to think and speak as they pleased. Yes? What is it? Lives here, Professor Heinrich Schertz. Yeah? Who are you? 
I am his wife. You will give him this paper immediately. Immediately. Heinrich. 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 Well, my Heinrich. dear. Heinrich. I told her. He just gave me this for you. Let me see it, Frieda. Heinrich. What is it? Read it, Heinrich. Nothing new, my friends. You've seen this before. Heinrich Schultz. Senior professor of philosophy at the State University is hereby summoned to appear before the High Chancellor to answer questions pertaining to a speech made by him before the students of this university on the 7th day of October. Signed this day, the 7th of October, 1848, for the High Chancellor, Karl Seiber, and the Secretary of Police. You know what this means? Of course. Imprisonment. They have no legal right. They wouldn't dare. <laughs> they wouldn't dare. My good friends. You forget where you are. Remember Professor Wiener? Remember Karl Ludwig, my best students? Gentle and peaceless, both of them. Where are they today? The young man shot trying to escape. The old man still in prison. Perhaps dead. And why? Because they love mankind. Because they ask for freedom of speech. What about you, Dr. Fay? Well, Heinrich. Are you going to go to the Chancellery tomorrow? No, no, gentlemen. I'm not going. I'm no martyr. And I'm no revolutionist. I don't think I could change things or make them better, even if I knew how. I'm a just teacher. If they won't let me teach here, I must go elsewhere. There's work for men like you and me all the world over. My friends, the time has come. Tomorrow, perhaps it is already too late. Who knows how many of you have got similar orders waiting for you at your home. Heinrich, what do you mean? What are you going to do? We're going to leave our country, Frida. You and I and the children. Then, we must go at once. Arrangements are made. Our friends will help us reach the border. And then? Then, then there are ships ready to take us to a country where men may think and speak the truth. They see it. Where freedom is a virtue, not a crime. To America. people who came here, to whom the name America was nothing but a word in a foreign tongue, and to them that word meant freedom from oppression, freedom from fear.
before the end of the day. The streets red with blood. Finally, Well, not for long. A few more months, maybe a year, maybe two years. When we have saved enough, then we shall leave this place. For a country where men can walk together side by side in broad daylight. Be afraid of no one. To a land that's rich and happy. To America. <laughs> came to mean life itself, just life and the chance to earn the things that maintain it, life in a new country across the sea, without foreign rulers, and where there was always enough to eat. There you are, Emily. There's your piece. Oh, Jeff, Yes, sir, Lady Fitz. Jeff, you're so solid you take a glass of pork. Yes, my lady. You're extremely kind, Lady Thompson. I will that. You have some more of these at the gates, Emily. We have them sent from London, you know. They never can make them quite right over here. Thank you, Lady Thompson. And now, Mr. O'Connor, what do you say? Well, my lady, I've, I've seen bad times in my day, but nothing like this. It's about three in every ten is dead of the famine and two more of the fever. So you might say it's about half the people in the county that are dead now. They're the same all over Ireland. In Skibbereen, if you'd believe it, there's not more than ten men left in the village. Oh, dear me. Emily, is that dreadful? What are they going to do about it? That's what I'd like to know. And they're burying them, Lady Thompson. That is to say, if there's any left alive to be doing the digging. Sure, the graveyards are so filled that they, they do be laying them down in the gardens now, leaving them in the open fields where the dogs come as they do in the night. Oh, how shocking. It is that. Only last week, my sister was riding over to Bentre for the meet, and there were two of them lying right in the road on their faces. It's likely to get worse before it gets better, it is indeed, Lady Thompson. Yes, it's August, and seeding time almost passed, and not a tenth of the land seeded. You know what that means, I'm certain. No. It means no potatoes, your ladyship. No potatoes at all for another year, surely. Potatoes? Oh, they're part of the orders to go on eating potatoes. Well, your ladyship, potatoes is about all the land's fit for. To say what land in Ireland the country people are permitted. Oh, well, then I suppose they can't help it. And then there's the rinse, my lady. Yes. Sure, I had a hard time with it last year, your ladyship, and this year I don't know how I'm going to be going about it. What do you mean? Well, they, they're hard to approach, your ladyship. They, they've gotten mean with a hunger. That's absurd. A rent is a rent. They must pay. I'll do my best, your ladyship, but I can't go getting blood out of a stone or money out of a dead man. Well, they're not all dead. You just said they're not all dead. Well, that's entirely true, your ladyship, but then that's alive yet, there's a lot that you'll be leaving the country. Every day now you hear of them going off from their land, nobody left at home to work it. What do you mean going? Going where? America, your ladyship. America? How dare they? I'm sure there's no law against that, your ladyship. They do say there's food to be eaten there and work to earn it with. Pat O'Mernon's brother, you know Patrick, your ladyship, is one of your gardeners. Well, his brother went away to America only two years ago, and, and we hear now he's, he's doing famously. He's digging the Erie Canal, he is, and making his fortune. Oh, there's opportunities in America, your ladyship. It's a fine free land, it is. Uh, well... Please, I mean to say, jobs there, your ladyship. At any rate, ways to keep alive, if you know what I mean. Yeah, well, anyway, it's a big country. Oh, well, Lieutenant, 
I suppose it can't be stopped. I suppose not, your ladyship. I suppose it can't. And then sometimes they've come here simply for the right to keep alive. landed more than 300 years ago. People coming from all over the world, some of them only dimly knowing why they came. And all of them have this thing in their heart, this dream of freedom. And when they have come here, what have they found? They found happiness, most of them. And money, some of them. And freedom? Well, no. No, they didn't find freedom when they first came here. See, Simon, it turns out that freedom isn't something you find lying around, even in a new country. And it's not a thing other people can give you. Something you have to want awfully bad before you get it. Freedom's a thing you make for yourself. listening to the Campbell Playhouse presentation of our American cavalcade, The Things We Have, an original radio drama starring Orson Welles and Cornelio de Skinner. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. This is Ernest Chappell, ladies and gentlemen, welcoming you back to the Campbell Playhouse. In a moment or two, we shall resume our presentation of the American Cavalcade. A great deal of historical research went into the preparation of the story for tonight's broadcast. Right down from revolutionary times, the customs and manners of succeeding generations were closely studied. And to me, the most interesting sidelight of all this study was the evidence that appeared again and again to show that all of our ancestors were just as fond of eating chicken as we are today. As early as July 1746, the London Magazine published these observations of a traveler in Virginia. I quote, All over the colony a universal hospitality reigns, full tables and open doors, unquote. And among the favorite dishes he mentions fowls, boiled or roasted. In 1756, a Miss Anna Maria Dandridge was celebrated for her recipe for chicken surprise. And Mrs. Mary Randolph's book, The Virginia Housewife of 1831, features a delectable fricassee of small chicken. Chicken wings a la Perigord were the entree of a great birthday dinner given for General Grant. And so we find that our present-day liking for chicken is a heritage, that we come by it naturally. Well, as sure as you like chicken, you like Campbell's chicken soup. Every ounce of the good meat of plump, tender chickens goes into this good soup to fill it to the brim with chicken flavor. This is a chicken soup our forefathers would have enjoyed enthusiastically, and one that their good wives would have approved wholeheartedly. How about you? Have you tried Campbell's chicken soup? 
Now we resume our Campbell Playhouse presentation, starring Orson Welles and Cornelio de Skinner. Ushers. We don't have any soldiers in. Oh. Aren't you like the ball game? Oh, yes, it was fine. Well, we can come again sometime. Maybe I understand better. As often as you like, son. Well, here we are. Here's your car. Hey, what's the hurry? Oh, this your car? Yes, officer. What gave you the idea you could leave your car in a no parking zone? I, I didn't know you couldn't park here, officer. Oh, you didn't, huh? No, sir. Well, what do you think this yellow line is along the curb? I didn't know. What do you think those signs mean? Wait a minute, officer. When I pulled in here, there's half a dozen other cars. So you think that gives you a right to break the law, right? Sorry, officer. I won't do it again. Now, that's mighty white of you, mister. And just to make sure that you know what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you a little ticket just to remind you the next Oh, time. now, wait a minute, officer. I... I... Uh, now, here it is. Right in the door handle. You can pay the fine at headquarters any time before Friday. Yes, sir. Was that a soldier? No, Simon. That was a policeman. What does a policeman mean? Mean? It means we just got a ticket. A, a ticket? Yeah, we're just arrested. Well, I don't understand. Uh, you see, you say last night that this is a free country. A free country? Sure it is, but that doesn't mean you can break the law. Uh, what is the law? Who makes it? Why, the people. They make their own laws. That's what you mean when you say it's a free country. Well, then, why don't you make a law so that you can put your motor car wherever you want to on the street? <laughs> can't do that exactly, Simon. I can't make a law just for myself. Laws are made by everybody for everybody. Well, how do you mean everybody? I mean, the people of the United States. They're the government. Government of the people, for the people, and by the people. Do you know who said that, son? Well, no, sir, I don't. Well, Lincoln said that. Did you ever hear of Abraham Lincoln? Did you ever hear of the traffic court? Oh, excuse me, officer. We'll just go. Come on, come on. I've seen Lincoln's picture. He was a great man with a beard. Hey, do you mean to tell me you never heard of Abraham Lincoln, the father of our country? What's wrong with the kid? Has he been to school? Not over here, officer. He's just been here two days. Yeah. Say, buddy, didn't they teach you nothing about Lincoln in Europe? No, sir. I only know he was born very poor and that he was always very honest. Uh, he was a president of this country. <laughs> Are you going to be president when you grow up? I don't know, sir. How do you become a president? Well, if you mind your father and mother and wash your hands before every meal and be good at school, then when you grow up, maybe you'll be president. Well, who makes me a president? People. People. Yeah. Oh, and, and after the people have made me president, can I do just as I please? <laughs> I'll say you can. Officer, I don't know. You see, while the president is directly responsible to us during the four years of his office, he must consider our opinions as expressed by our representatives. Oh, right? oh sure. 
And then if we don't like the way he's done his job, we elect another president. And if he's a really bad man, we have the right to fire him before his time's over. That's right. It's a free country. Well, uh, does a free country mean that you don't have to pay for anything? I'm afraid you have to pay for everything everywhere, son. A free country is a country in which the government is chosen and run by the people. Yeah, like Lincoln said. What's a policeman? A policeman is a public servant. Servant? Yeah, but that don't mean I gotta wash the dishes. Come on now, get moving. Yes, officer. Hey, look out. Yes, officer. Watch where you're going. Yes, officer. I know. I'll tell you more about this after dinner. Free country. Bedtime, Simon. I'm sorry, Mary. I made Simon a promise. Got more explaining to do. Oh, Jim. You know he's had a full day with a ball game and everything, and tomorrow he's got to get up early and meet the teacher. Please, Mary, just this once. Got to keep my word. All right, Simon. Just this once. Uh, uh, was America always a free country? No, dear. America used to belong to England. We had to fight for our freedom. You never stopped fighting. That's the story I want to tell Simon. Very well, dear. You and Simon go in and sit down. All right. I'll be with you in a minute. Remember, you haven't much time. Well, Father, uh, tell me, when did America become a free country? 1776, dear. That's the day of the Declaration of Independence, July 4th. Hmm, aren't you smart? Uh, it started before that. Before the Revolution. Friends, I propose a resolution. So I know no resolution. I propose resolution. Burn the key. Burn the key. Burn the key. Come on, I'm going to get them. Oh, I'm sure. 
Honey, you read English pretty well. I try. Of course he does. Okay. All right, then. There's something I'd like you to read it. Oh, yes? After you've been in school for a few days, it's going to make you learn this stuff by heart, and you and the other kids are going to start it over and over again until you get awful sick of it. That's a shame, because it's good stuff. That's why I'd like you to read it to us now for the first time. Come on over, Annie. Sit down by the light. Okay? Oh, yes. All right.
And Simon, besides these first Americans who fought us for their freedom and lost, there were other Americans. Simon, do you remember all the different kinds of people I told you about who came to this country like yourself to find freedom? Yes. Well, son, if somebody says that the American colonists should have stayed in their own country and fought there for liberty, you tell them that what was done in that short time here in the New World made possible the whole progress of liberty everywhere else. But for many years, our American example was not entirely good. As we've seen, there were the Indians from whom we stole this country. And then there were those other people. People the rest of us still sometimes don't treat so very well. People we used to buy and sell as though they were our property. Well, if they were, they were stolen property because these Americans were brought to this country without wanting to come. Sir, very welcome. Yeah. Be a good time, Captain Douglas. It is, sir. 41 days from Sierra Leone. The wind's most all the way. Captain Douglas, you got your man of it? Yes, sir. Shall we go below? I wouldn't go below if I were you, sir. Not with this cargo. Here's the manifest, sir. Brought it up. Thank you. you everything tally? How many aboard? 326 blacks, sir. 96, rather. This morning's count, 161 males, 192 females, and that's children. Manifest is 405 blacks. I can account for everyone, sir. Overboard in the store of the behemoth, four males, three females, two children. Died of disease and exposure, 35. Total loss of cargo on voyage, 44 blacks. Just an average, sir. Yes, so it is. Your underwriters will thank you for that, Captain Douglas. Yes. Haven't been doing so well lately. Vespers came in ten days ago, less than half a cargo. Mutiny and disease. Those foreigners never did know how to stow their blacks. Well, Captain, here's your orders of consignment. Thank you, sir. You've got three ports of call. At Charleston, you'll unload a hundred males, the best you've got. At Norfolk, thirty males, forty females. The rest of cargo to Norland. Oh, and, uh, Miss Douglas, sir. Yes? There are two new ones. Two born on the voyage. Shall we keep them with their mothers? The buyers want them, certainly. They're all their own way. I mean to say, sir, admitting they're savages. Pray don't misunderstand me. Do you follow? Yes, sir. They are humans. That's, that's how the Negro people came to this country, Simon, like cattle. Stowed three deep in the cargoes of slave ships, chained together, each on their right side to keep their hearts beating. And for many years after America was founded and dedicated by the men who founded it to certain truths which they held to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, we Americans kept the Negro people as our slaves. Of course, sometimes they were... Very well treated by great-grandfather. Yes, sometimes the Negro people were better than beasts of burden. They were our household pets. Yes. But old John Brown of Kansas was thinking of when he went down into the nicest farm country in Virginia, where slaves were happiest. 
took on the whole United States Navy. Army. <laughs> oh, Jim. John Brown isn't worth talking about. Everybody knows he was crazy. Well, he wasn't crazy enough to think he could lift the world with 18 men. He tried it, didn't he? I don't know. Who was John Brown? He's another American who fought for liberty. Oh, I'll see. See, after folks have been talking for some time about fighting the slave states to free the slaves, old John Brown sold his business and took his sons with him. Went out and fought America to show America what it ought to do. Is he a good man? He's a man of God. He's like Joshua in the Old Testament. He died according to the mule. Maybe he was mad. Maybe he was a very great man. Your name, prisoner? My name is John Brown. I have been known as Old Brown of Kansas. Two of my sons were killed here today. And I'm dying too. We are abolitionists from the north. Come to take and release your slaves. You consider yourself an instrument in the hands of Providence? I do. On what principle do you justify your acts? Upon the golden rule. I pity the poor in bondage that have none to help them. The oppressed and wronged that are as good as you and as precious in the sight of God. That is why I'm here. This court acknowledges, as I suppose, the validity of the law of God. I see a book kissed here, which I suppose to be the Bible, or at least the New Testament. That teaches me that all things whatsoever I would that men should do to me, I should do so even to them. I believe that to have interfered as I have done in behalf of the despised poor was not wrong, but right. Had I so interfered in behalf of the rich, the powerful, the intelligent, the so-called great, or in behalf of any of their friends, either father, mother, brother, sister, wife, or children, or any of that class, and suffered and sacrificed what I have in this interference, every man in this court would have deemed it an act worthy of reward rather than of punishment. Now, if it is deemed necessary that I should forfeit my life, the furtherance of the ends of justice, and mingle my blood with the blood of millions in this slave country, whose rights are disregarded by wicked, cruel, and unjust enactments, I submit. So let it be done. And it was done. They took John Brown up to a hill over Charlestown and hanged him. There were men who made a song about it, a marching song. And thousands of Americans went to their death singing it in the great civil war. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave, but his soul goes marching on. The civil war was fought between the North and the South Islands to determine state rights. What's that? The South believed that each state had a right to quit the whole union of states if it wanted to. And the North said no. America must stick together. It's a wonderful story, the story of the Civil War. Filled with brave and gallant heroes. But it's a sad story, too, because both sides were fighting for freedom. And how did it turn out? Well, the North took a lot that was good from the South in that war. But in the end, there was still the United States of America. And there were no more slaves. An amendment to the Constitution of the United States of America passed by both houses of Congress was signed this 20th day of March, 1870, by Ulysses S. Grant, President of the United States. The right of the citizens of the United States to vote cannot be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, 
color or previous condition of servitude. You be one with a ballot, ma'am. Ladies don't vote. I want to vote. Well, you can't vote. You're a woman. The law says... I know what the law says. It says that the right of the citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Want a ballot, please? Say, wait a minute. Ain't you the lady that wore bloomers at Seneca Falls? My name is Susan B. Anthony, and I demand either that you allow me to vote or that you arrest me. Gee, lady, why don't you go home? I demand to be arrested or to be allowed to vote. Go on, go on, handcuff me. Oh, lady, have a heart. Your Honor, gentlemen of the jury, the defendant is indicted under the 19th section of the Act of Congress, May 21st, 1870, for voting without having a lawful right to vote. The only alleged illegality of the defendant's vote is that she is a woman. If the same act had been done by her brother under the same circumstances, the act would have been not only innocent, but honorable and laudable. But having been done by a woman, it is said to be a crime. It is the belief of this court that the 14th Amendment, under which the defendant claimed the right to vote, is a protection, not to all our rights, but... Oh, I direct the jury to bring in the verdict of guilty. The jury is now dismissed. Your Honor, I wish to take an exception. The jury has not spoken. Exception denied. Has the prisoner anything to say why sentence should not be pronounced? Yes, Your Honor. I have many things to say. For in your ordered verdict of guilty, you have trampled underfoot every vital principle of our government. My natural rights, my civil rights, my political rights, my judicial rights are all alike ignored. I am degraded from the status of a citizen to that of a subject. The prisoner will sit down. Your Honor, I demand to be heard. The prisoner will sit down. Sit, madam, sit. Of all my prosecutors, from the corner grocery politician who entered the complaint, to the United States Marshal, Commissioner, District Attorney, District Judge, your Honor on the bench, not one, is my peer, but each and all are my political sovereigns. And had Your Honor submitted my case to the jury, as was clearly your duty, even then I should have had just cause of protest. But not one of these men was my peers. But native or foreign-born, white or black, rich or poor, educated or ignorant, sober or drunk, each and every man of them was my political superior. Hence, in no sense, my peer. Uh, the court must insist. The prisoner has been tried according to the established forms of law. Yes, Your Honor, but by forms of law, all made by men, interpreted by men, in favor of men against women. The court orders the prisoner to sit down. It will not allow another word. The prisoner will now stand up. The sentence of the court is to pay a fine of $100 and the cost of the prosecution. May it please, Your Honor, I'll never pay a dollar of your unjust penalty. 
And I shall earnestly and persistently continue to urge all women to the practical recognition of the old revolutionary maxim, resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. They made her pay a lot of money. Did the ladies stop trying to vote? They did not. I'll say they didn't. They go to war, too? Well, not exactly, but for 50 years they marched and talked and starved themselves in jails. And then in the end, it did take a war to make men see that women were people. Did you go to prison, too? <laughs> I was too young, or I might have. <laughs> Jim, what are you laughing at? Remember how your mother got that congressman from Maryland to vote for the amendment? <laughs> Congressman Frank? I am. What can I do for you? Mr. Frank, I've come out here to ask you to vote for the woman's suffrage amendment. Well, Missy, certainly picked a hot day. I'd like to talk to you, but my neighbor here wants to get his wheat in before that thunderstorm breaks. Anyway, it wouldn't do any good. I can't see that selfish is right, so I can't vote for it. Did you think the war was right? Well, of course. And why did we go to war? Well, to get democracy. Exactly. And didn't President Wilson say that democracy was the right of all those who submit to authority to have a voice known government? Now, look here, Missy. I believe women are superior beings to men, and if they were to vote, they'd have to be equal. Now, look at this haystack. Why, you could no more pick hay... Will you lend me your pitchfork? Well, sure. Here you are. You want a hand up? No, thank you. Well, I'll be bigger. Labor's scarce. <sighs> now I know where to look for it when I need it. <clears throat> what I came to you for? For your help, your vote. Will you give it to me? Well, I guess one good turn deserves another. I don't know why if you can sit hay like that, man, you shouldn't vote. And so, everybody got the vote, Simon, even the ladies, which is all right with us, isn't it? And after that, of course, everybody lived happily ever after. Hi, Jim, what do you mean? Well, everybody, that is, except a few millions of American citizens who haven't worked for years. Of course, those several hundred thousands on the land... Who don't own the homes they live in, nor the fields they work in, nor the crops they grow. Those several hundred thousands are almost too poor to live at all. Those folks have a vote, too. Maybe that isn't quite enough for them. Maybe they still want that freedom their folks came here for. That freedom everybody's been fighting for in this country all these years. Maybe some of them might settle for the wrong kind of freedom. Maybe some of them might trade their vote for a decent meal. That's bad, son. Whose fault is this? I've just been looking at this book again. I'd like to read you a few more sentences. George Washington said this when the revolution was won. The citizens of America, placed in the most enviable conditions, as the sole lords and proprietors of a vast tract of continent, comprehending all the various soils and climates of the world, and abounding with all the necessaries and conveniences of life, are now acknowledged to be possessed of absolute freedom and independence. The foundation of our empire was not laid in the gloomy age of ignorance and superstition, but at an epoch when the rights of mankind were better understood and more clearly defined than at any former period. At this auspicious period, the United States came into being as a nation, and if their citizens should not be completely free and happy, the fault would be entirely their own. What is that for us to do, then? 
Can we change things? If we ought to. No quotation that covers that. Goes like this. This country with its institutions belongs to the people who inhabit it. Whenever they shall grow weary of the existing government, they can exercise their constitutional right of amending it or their revolutionary right to dismember or overthrow it. Oh, Jim. Who said that? Abraham Lincoln. Well, if Simon's going to start changing things in America, we better get some sleep. Come on, son. I've got a full day tomorrow. concludes the Campbell Playhouse presentation of our American cavalcade, The Things We Have, an original radio drama by Orson Welles, starring Cornelio de Skinner and Mr. Wells. In just a moment, Mr. Wells and Miss Skinner will return to the microphone, but first a word on behalf of our sponsors. As sure as you like chicken, you like Campbell's chicken soup. I mentioned that a little while ago, and I'm repeating it now because I want to impress it upon you. I'm pretty certain you like chicken, so I'm anxious that you try Campbell's chicken soup. And find out, as so many thousands have, how delicious it is. I wish you could see it being made. Only meaty, plump-breasted chickens are used. Each one government inspected. The broth is simmered from them in true home kitchen style. Till it glistens with the most inviting color you can imagine. Tender pieces of chicken are dropped in. And to make the soup extra substantial, fluffy, nourishing rice. Believe me, Campbell's chicken soup is as delicious and as full-flavored as the finest chicken soup you've ever tasted. Perhaps even more so. Why not discover that for yourself this weekend? And now I think Orson Welles has a special message for you. Ladies and gentlemen, this too is a part of the things we have here in America. All winter long, disabled veterans have been making poppies, slowly and patiently with their own hands. Tomorrow is poppy day, a day when grateful citizens will wear the little red symbol of Flanders Field. It is more than a tag to show that we've contributed to these disabled veterans, their families, and the families of the World War dead the token of our continued devotion to those ideals which they stood so nobly. Now, before I present our guest to you, Mr. Chappell, would you please announce the cast of tonight's broadcast? Yes, Mr. Wells. In tonight's Campbell Playhouse production, The Things We Have, Orson Wells played James Scott, Professor Schertz, O'Shaughnessy, Chief Logan, and John Brown. Cornelia Otis Skinner played the parts of Mary Scott, Frau Schertz, the Polish woman, Lady Townsend, and Susan B. Anthony. Others who completed tonight's cast were Ray Collins, Frank Reddick, Everett Sloan, Agnes Moorhead, Howard Smith, Kenneth Delmar, Kingsley Colton, and William Harrigan. The music for the Campbell Playhouse is arranged and conducted by Bernard Herman. And now I know you want to hear from our two stars. Orson Welles? Ladies and gentlemen, it was great pleasure that I introduced to you a lady who has been variously described as a one-woman theater, a top-notch sorceress, and one of the greatest single attractions on the American stage, Miss Cornelia de Skinner. Thank you, Mr. Wells. I think I should explain for those few of you who don't already know it that Miss Skinner is that rare and remarkable artist in the theater, a solo actress. Quite alone and without scenery or properties of any kind, she's created the complete conviction of hundreds of thousands of people, such characters as, among others, as the Empress Eugenie, Nell Gwynne, and I believe all six wives of Henry VIII. Not satisfied with this, last season, Miss Skinner did an even more remarkable thing. She successfully toured the country in her own adaptation of Margaret Eyre Barnes' famous novel, Edna, His Wife. In this full-length play, Miss Skinner, I believe you played the part of Edna. Yes. Edna's sister. Yes. Edna's mother. Yes. Family friends. Yes. And five other women. Yes. In addition to this, according to a New York critic, you created in your audience's mind the pictures of a large number of men who never appeared. 
Must have been quite a frantic little evening, Miss King. No more frantic, I assure you, than being here with you tonight at the Campbell Playhouse. Well, I don't know whether to take that as a compliment or not. I assure you it's a compliment. I've had a wonderful time playing those five different parts. Thank you, Miss Kenneth. It's been a great pleasure to have you with us. Good night, Mr. Wells. Good night. And now, a few words about next week's announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, Friday night at the same time, we bring you the greatest event in this year of radio broadcasting. I say this unblushingly. Next week, the marquee on the front of the Campbell Playhouse blazes with the most magical words known to this decade of theatrical entertainment. Helen Hayes and Victoria Regina. Till that time, my sponsors, the makers of Campbell Soup, and all of us on the Campbell Playhouse remain obediently yours. The makers of Campbell's Soup join Orson Wells in inviting you to be with us at the Campbell Playhouse again next Friday evening when that star of stars, Miss Helen Hayes, pays us a second visit. Our play will be Miss Hayes' latest and greatest stage hit, the phenomenally successful Victoria Regina. This will be its first presentation on the air. Meanwhile, if you have enjoyed tonight's Campbell Playhouse presentation, won't you tell your grocer so tomorrow when you order Campbell's Chicken Soup? This is Ernest Chappell saying thank you and good night. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. That concludes today's episode. We'd like to thank you and remind you to donate at choiceclassicradio.com. Remember, your donations make episodes like this possible.